verse 11 through 32. <clears throat> Go ahead and turn there. Um, as you do, I just want to remind you that um, this series is the heart of the matter. The whole year we're spending with Jesus, and we're going to look at, at different things through Jesus' life and ministry and, and how they can impact us, in turn, how we can impact others. And so I want to start out right away just reading from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32 this morning. The parable of the lost son. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the young son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, excuse me. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went off to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he is back. He has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you. Never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Wow. That is a lot to swallow. You see, this parable, it's about more than just two sons and their father. It, it's tied. It's a parable that's tied to the loss of one of 100 sheep. And it's also tied up to the loss of one of 10 coins. It's tied to the murmuring of the Pharisees as well. They were murmuring about Jesus, you see. Jesus, at the beginning of, his, of this chapter, he's seen to be accepting sinners and tax collectors and dining with them. 
And the Pharisees grumble. They, just like people of Israel did in the wilderness. They, they murmured in the crowd. It wasn't loud complaining. They weren't challenging the Lord or they weren't heckling him from the crowd. They just didn't like that this upstart preacher from the country, and, and he was just a carpenter after all. And in the midst of the crowd of listeners, in the midst of the congregation, if you will, among those who would hear and follow Jesus, these Pharisees began to complain. They began to mutter to others. He's no good. How can he be? He receives sinners and tax collectors and he eats with them. And with their complaints, they tried to poison the atmosphere. With their murmuring, they undermined the preaching of the gospel. And with their negative words, they, they, they interfered with the ability of others to hear and believe Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father God, I pray that this morning our, uh, our murmurings and our, and, and our minds and our, ourselves won't interfere with your gospel message. Lord, I pray that, that again, our hearts would be open to your word. I pray that our lives will be fruitful, that, that we will live for you. I pray that we will not have a desire to turn away from you, that we will not have a desire to be like this prodigal son and leave and come back and leave and come back, but that we will desire to stand firm. I pray that you will show us your will. I pray that you will help us to be a vessel that you can fill up every day and that we will go out into this community and pour ourselves out. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. You see, the Pharisees, they're murmuring and they're complaining. It was serious. It was a serious offense. And in response to this, Jesus does what he does best. He tells parables. First, he tells a parable about some sheep. When you look at the whole context of this chapter, he tells a parable about a sheep, about some sheep. And then a shepherd. And then he tells a parable about some coins and a woman. And then he closes it out telling this story about two sons and their father. You see, it's a parable about return, about finding and coming to life. However, with return is leaving. And with finding, first there is losing. And with coming back to life, first there is death. Long before turning and returning, the son in this story had left. He engaged in radical rejection. He rejected his father's home. He rejected his father's heart. He rejected his father's love. The father's joy at the end of the story is rooted in sorrow. His celebration has mourning in the background. The father's experience of of the tender joy of return is accented by the bitterness of loss and leaving and of sorrow. To understand compassion, we must understand brokenness. To understand this story well, we must understand the younger son, long before turning back, long before his time of restoration and joy and celebration, the younger son had left. These three parables of sheep, of coins, and of sons, maybe they should be seen as just one parable because they are about being lost and being found, of sorrow and the anxiety of loss and the joy and celebration at finding Jesus told these parables because his opponents were complaining. 
that he was eating and drinking with sinners. They thought it was scandalous to entertain sinners. The problem was the Pharisees were separatists. They muttered about that the Lord, that he welcomes sinners, that he eats with them. And the Lord is about, and so the Lord tells them about finding lost sheep and the celebration that it caused. He tells them about finding a lost coin and the rejoicing that it brought about. And he tells them about a man with two sons and the feast they had when the one who departed returned. The story begins with the younger son requesting the family assets that he would eventually get so that he might go on his way. He says to his father, let me have the share of, my, of the estate that falls to me. In, in this time, the eldest son would get a double portion. So he would, the eldest son would get two-thirds, the younger son would get one-third. And the father complies. We understand from the parable, this was not a poor family. Okay? The, this family was probably very wealthy. They had servants. The father had, they had the ability to have a feast at his, at his whim whenever he wanted. He has fine robes. The family has signet rings. So this was not your average family. Amazingly, the father complies without question. He gives the young man his share of the estate. The young man gathers together all that he received. He turns it into cash and he leaves. See, the story is so short and it's so pointed that sometimes we, we hardly really think that much is happening. But when we get to the heart of the matter, it's hard to really imagine the significance of this unheard of event. Those who, who heard this parable from the mouth of Jesus might have gasped or held their breath waiting to see what was going to happen next. Because what's happening here is hurtful. It's, it's selfish, it's offensive, and it's a radical rejection of the Father's love. And, and it's a radical rejection of the Father's position. You see, no son in Jesus' day would have asked such a thing. No, that request means that he went to his father and basically said, I wish you were dead. He says to his father, I no, no longer have the patience to wait for you to die. I want what is coming to me. And I want it now. Show me the money. That's what the son says to his father, essentially. And more than that, the son's request and his leaving, it, it's even more radical than that, and it's much more offensive than it first seems because it, it's a heartless rejection of the home in which he was born and raised. And, and he leaves for a distant country. Not, not because he has the desire to do some traveling, but it's the desire to get out from under the restraints of living within the family home. This is about a drastic cutting loose from the way from, from this way of thinking and, and being and acting that has been handed to him by his father. It's not just disrespect. It's betrayal. It's betrayal of the family values. It's betrayal of the family community. This distant country that this boy went to is, is the world where what home considers holy has just been disregarded. How can I say all this? Well, when you look at it, you see, the son doesn't ask for his inheritance. Because with inheritance, at that time, would come responsibility. With inheritance would come customs and honor and tradition. No, he just asked for the wealth, the substance of the estate. He doesn't care for the moral obligations that come with the estate because he takes what he has for granted. He takes what he has for granted. And you know what? The fact of the matter is, when we look into the mirror we probably should be saying, you know what, that's me. You see, when we get to the heart of the matter, this parable, perhaps more than any other, 
is about the relationship between the father and those of his household. It's about the father in the covenant of grace and about his people. It's about his boundless mercy and his compassionate love. And it's about grace unlimited. That's a parable of love unconditional. This is the center, the unconditional love. It's about love for sinners who are not worthy of a father's love. And yet he loves them, us, completely. When we place ourselves in the light of this story, then we are exposed as, as this young man. When that divine love is shown upon me, upon you, then we are exposed and uncovered. Leaving home is much closer to our spiritual experience than we really want to admit or than we may have thought of. See, there's this radical separation that we so often engage in. The taking for granted that the covenant inheritance is ours to do with as we please. As if we had a right to that inheritance and its riches. As if the promise of the father's providential care of the son's riches, so to speak, forgiveness of sin and everlasting righteousness, the Holy Spirit's presence, as if those things were ours by right and privilege, as if they belonged to us because of us. See the parallel? But back to the young man. The young man receives that for which he has no right to until his father dies. And the implication is this. Father, I can't wait for you to die. I want to get on with my life. And you, frankly, are in my way. I want to leave this place. How many of us have left home like that? How many of us have left home with the prodigal son? This is the great tragedy of the lives of God's people. Time and time again, we reject the Father's love and go off into sin, seeking the pleasures of this world. We want to find our own way. It is the sorrow of father's hearts from generation to generation that sons and daughters leave home. Not that they grow up and and find a boyfriend or a girlfriend and a fiance and get married, but that they leave the spiritual home of God's grace, that they leave the spiritual household of God's covenant, that they leave the household where God has called them his beloved. So many have become deaf to that voice. So many have left the only place where they can hear that voice and gone off desperately hoping to find it somewhere else. They thought they needed and, and, and they couldn't find it at home. We need not even leave the church. There's so many times that, that we do not hear. We murmur and we grumble like the Pharisees. We plug our ears and we engage in defiant deafness. Thinking that we can find what we need by listening to the message of the faraway country. And this is unbelievable. Why should we leave the place where all we need where all we need to hear can be heard. Why should we leave the place? Why should we stop our ears? But there's so many voices that come at us. Voices that are loud and, and seductive and mysterious and engaging and inviting. Voices that say, come on now, prove yourself. You know, even, even Jesus, after his baptism, after, after hearing the Lord speak from heaven, Jesus was brought into the wilderness and tempted. He was tempted by the devil himself that he would be loved if he were successful. That he would be, the, the devil could make him popular if he would do these things. Turn these stones into bread. Jump off of this cliff. Those voices. 
For us, their popularity and being powerful. You know, there in the far off country, the voices call that we should be the best we can be. That we, that we must be achievers. That we must be the top dogs for anybody to care about us. We have to have everybody looking at us. That we must first of all watch out for number one. Because if we don't, no one will watch out for us. Be sure to make it through school, kids, because your grades will define you. Those of you in sports, those trophies will show how good you really are. Your grades, how successful you will be. Your friends determine how much power you will have. Your beauty defines you. Those are the voices that we hear. Don't show your weaknesses to anyone because they will destroy you in a moment. Those are the voices of the faraway country. When we hear the voice of the Son of God and listen to Him, then there is no need to fear. The serene call of the world is harmless. But when we forget unconditional love and we begin to think that love is earned, then all those things become the call of the distant country. All those things like anger and resentment, jealousy, lust, greed, desire for revenge, rivalries. These are the obvious expression that we have left home for that distant land. And then we fall into a trap of bitterness. Why did so-and-so hurt me? Why did they reject me? Why did they not pay attention to me? We brood about other people's successes, our own loneliness, our own failures, and then we dream about becoming rich and famous and powerful. So we leave home in search of fulfillment, in search of that which we think we can find, that which we think we must have, We think we can't find it at home with our father. So we go on a journey of selfish searching. And then this is the question. To whom do we belong? To the father or to the world? Surely the father and the son in this parable must have spoken many times. I like to think that this conversation probably went like this. The father said, or excuse me, the son said to his father, I want to be independent. You must give me my freedom. We've never said this as teenagers, I'm sure. Why don't you trust me? I can stay out till midnight. I want to be independent. Give me my freedom. I can't go on living like this with all these rules and restrictions and the things you, these, these expectations you place on me. I can't do it. I'm big. I'm grown up. Quit treating me like a child. Does this sound familiar in anybody's house? Quit treating me like a child. I want my liberty. I feel as if I'm chained like galley slaves to the oars. I long for air. I need my space. Father, I want my freedom. And the father would have replied something like this. Do you really think that you are not free? After all, you are a child of the house. You can come to me whenever you wish to tell me of all and any troubles you might have. That's not freedom. You share in all the benefits of this family. All that I have, I share with you. There are many who would be happy to have such a son's privilege. Isn't that freedom? This father in this story may be saying to his son, my whole kingdom belongs to you. I love you. I give you daily bread. Or as our father in heaven says to us, I forgive your trespasses with joy when you bring them to me. 
And when you bring me the burdens of your heart and your guilt and your conscience, you are not bound. You are bound to no one. You are free, subject to no one but me. And yet you say you are not free. And then the son says, Father, I'm sick and tired of all this stuff, the training, the rules, the restraint. You won't let me do what I want. And the father replies, freedom means doing what I want when I want. Excuse me, the son. Freedom means doing what I want when I want. But the father replies, freedom is not becoming a servant of your desires. Freedom is not becoming a slave to lust and passion. It is not being chained to your ambition, your need for recognition, your love for money, wealth and riches. Why do I forbid you these? To limit your freedoms? Never. But to secure your freedom. That you might remain free. That you might live worthy of sonship. Because you are my son. Not to take your freedom. Not even to make you free. But because you are already free. We're already free. Free because of my love for you and my grace to you. But the son leaves anyways. He leaves in search of freedom. And we leave time and time again for freedom. To do as we please. What sorrow, what grief we end up with. He is the one who just for once wants to cut loose. Is that so bad? Yet this young son, I just want to cut loose, dad. I just want to go out. I want to have fun. I just want to hang out, have a party with my friends. Why is that so bad? If I don't, then I'll just not taste life and and I'll miss all the fun things. And, you know, but you know what? Here's the fact. A lot of kids today say, I'll show mom and dad. They can't stop me. I'll be in college in a few years. I'll go out and I'll live in the world and I'll do what I want. I'll have my freedom. I'll go out. I'll live in the world where neither mom nor dad, not even God, can make a difference. Then when I've had my fun, I'll return and I'll find my place back in the inheritance, in the communion of the church. I don't intend to be a rascal or a crook or I'm not going to murder anybody. I just want to cut loose and have some fun. Is that so bad, mom and dad? So the youngest son, he demands of his father that he gets his portion of the estate. And the father does a very unexpected thing. He doesn't scold his youngest son. He doesn't try to talk him out of it. He gives it to him. The younger son, like I said, he says, show me the money. The father does so he can do what he wants. You know, it's funny in the Old Testament, right, right at the beginning of Judges, the book of Judges, the Bible tells us that people were doing what was right in their own eyes. God was giving them over to their own desires. He gave them their freedom, quote unquote. And then he sent judges to clean up all their mess. It's a great thing to read through. It's the same thing here. The father gives his son over to his own desires. His, his, his action demonstrates a remarkable love. Because neither the shepherd in search of the sheep. Nor the woman who, who lost her coin. They didn't do anything out of the ordinary. Beyond what anyone else in their place would do. He's a shepherd so he goes and finds the sheep. She's a woman who lost a very valuable coin. So she went to search for it. But this father. His actions. They're, they're not rejection. But they're unique, marvelous, divine actions. They haven't been done by any father in the past. He grants the right of possession 
And he grants the right of disposition to his lost son. And he knew at that time his son was already lost. He wasn't lost in a faraway land. He was lost before he even left. Note, however, that the father's actions are not rejection. For we know that the father watches and watches and watches. And he waits for the return of his son. He will wait and he will never stop watching. Even as the good shepherd did not stop calling until he found the one sheep of a hundred. Just as the woman did not stop seeking until she found the one coin of ten. So also this father does not stop waiting and watching until one of his two sons return. This young son, he goes off, he lives in grand style. He goes far away so that that he's not going to know anybody. He's going to make his mark. No one can send him home. No one can find him. He's, He's not... He's, he's not lost on some local hillside like a sheep. He's not lost on the kitchen floor like, like a coin that got knocked off the counter. He runs away, far away, where none can find him or even reach him. And then he begins to party. He's living the life. He opens up his bank account and he begins to spend. He buys fancy things, clothes, house, all these things first class, better than most of his time. And he's making an impression. He hears that voice of the world that says, impress those around you, then they'll be your friends. And friends come like flies to honey. But his money runs through his fingers. And he cannot escape that all that he has has come from his father. He uses and abuses everything without really taking into account his father. He uses his body. He uses the clothes that he loves, the lifestyle that he needs, his possessions, his food and drink. They all come from the capital that his father gave him. And in themselves, those are good blessings. When the father in heaven gives us good things, they are blessings. Folks, the harvest is good. The economy is good. Life is good for us, for the most part. We enjoy peace and security. We enjoy unprecedented wealth considering other nations. But when we use these things without reference to the Father, they are simply wasted. They're simply wasted. In Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace?, He retells this story as it's the story of the prodigal son. He says, claims that this is a true story, uh, but it's a modern day point of view. It's very powerful. And I want to share it with you because I, I just want to give you a different perspective on what this may look like. A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents They're a bit old-fashioned. They tend to overreact with her nose ring and the music she listens to and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times for some of the things that she's done, sneaking out, staying out too late. And she seethes with anger. She screams at her father, I hate you, when he knocks on her door after an argument. And that night she acts out a plan that she has mentally rehearsed many times. She has visited the city of Detroit just once. It was with her church youth group. And and they were headed to a Tigers game. 
but because the, the newspapers in Traverse City, Michigan, talk in, in detail about the gangs and the violence and the things that go on in Detroit, she thought that's the last place that her parents will look for her. California, maybe. Florida, even, but not Detroit. So she runs away and she goes to Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her some lunch, arranges for a place for her to stay. Then he gives her some pills that just make her feel better than she's ever felt before. And she realizes she was right all along. And she decides that her parents were just keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she now calls him boss. He sees to it that she lives in a penthouse apartment. She orders room service whenever she wants. She has the finest things. She starts to think occasionally about folks back home, but their lives now seem so boring that she can hardly believe she grew up there. She's a woman who is conquering the world. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have You Seen This Child? But by now she has blonde hair and a lot of makeup and jewelry, and she figures nobody's going to recognize her. And most of her friends are runaways in Detroit, and nobody squeals in Detroit anyways. After a year of this lifestyle, the first sallow signs of illness appear. And it amazes her how fast her boss turns mean. These days we can't mess around, he growls. And before she knows that she is out on the street without a penny to her name, she still does what she can to make a few bucks. All the money goes to support her drug habit. And when the winter wind blows, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the big department stores. Sleeping is actually the wrong word for it. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never really relax her guard. One night as she lies awake listening for footsteps, all of a sudden everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman who is conquering the world. She feels like a little girl lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs up tighter, closer to her as she shivers under the newspapers that she's piled on top of her coat as a blanket. And something jolts a a synapse of her memory. A single image fills her mind of May in Traverse City, Michigan, when a million cherry trees bloom at once with her golden retriever dashing through the rows of cherry trees, chasing a tennis ball. She thinks, God, why did I leave? Pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do. She's sobbing. And she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home.
Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and it'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. Takes about seven hours for a bus to make it, all the, all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. And during that time, she realizes there might be a few flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and they miss her message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or so until she could talk to them? Even if they are home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech that she is preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I, I know I was wrong. It's, it's not your fault. It's all mine. Uh, Dad, can you forgive me? She, she says these words over and over in, in her mind and in her heart. And her, her throat tightens even as she rehearses them. She, she hasn't apologized to anyone for years. 
And when the bus finally rolls into the station, the air brakes hissing defiantly in protest, and the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks. That's all we have here. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in the compact mirror. She smooths her hair and licks the lipstick off of her teeth, and she looks at the tobacco stains of her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice if they're there. She walks into the terminal, not knowing what to expect, and not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees. There in the concrete walls and the plastic chairs of the bus station, 40 or so family members, brothers and sisters, great aunts, uncles, cousins, her grandmother and even a great-grandmother, all gathered around. They had, they had uh, ridiculous party hats on and they're blowing noisemakers and, and taped across the wall of the bus depot is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad and she looks through tears and she begins her memorized speech. Dad, I'm, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. And he interrupts her. He says, hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies right now. You'll be late for the party. There's a banquet waiting for you at home. And so it is with God's amazing grace. But what's so amazing about it anyways? Ask people what they must do to, to get to return to God. And most of them just reply, be good. But Jesus' stories, his parables, his life, his ministry contradict that answer. Because at the heart of the matter, all we really have to do is cry help. God welcomes. He welcomes anyone who will have him. And in fact, he's made the first move already. This verse, Hebrews 12, 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning his shame and sat down at the right hand of God, the throne of God. He's already made the first move. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what pigs you've wallowed with. It doesn't matter where you were yesterday or last night. It matters where you are right now. And God is waiting and he is looking down the road. And he's ready for you to come home and he has the finest white robe to give you. In all of this, we see God's covenant love. Though the relationship has been severed between son and father, between son and family, between son and community, and even congregation, the father remains faithful. And the father remains a father. And the son remains the son. There's a striking relationship between this parable, between this request of the younger son and the request that we make with our actions to God. But he always remains the father. His word continues to come to us. His Holy Spirit continues to seek us out. I want to challenge you to hear then the voice of the good shepherd calling. See with the eye of faith that your Father is waiting for you. Today as we stand and we get ready to sing our decision song, He's here for you. If you want to be baptized, we can do that. If it's time to come running home to His arms, maybe for the very first time, come on.
Maybe for you it's a time for repentance. Maybe you've realized where you've been in, in business and world and school and friends and family. and Maybe you've just done things wrong and you want a fresh start. Come running. Maybe you want to join up with us. You want to partner with us at Huntsville Christian Church and impact this community so that we can welcome other prodigals just like ourselves and say, hey, come home. Welcome home. We're going to have a party because you're here. We want you to know about the love of our Father. If that's you, just come as we sing our song. Will you stand and sing with us?